in Zechariah chapter 11. We had such a wonderful uh, first service. I'm so glad that you're here today on this wonderful Sunday that God has given us. Zechariah chapter 11, I'm going to give you a, not a warning because it's, 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 uh, it's not nothing bad. It's, uh, it's all good. But I'm going to give you a warning before I preach that this passage of Scripture is a very difficult passage of Scripture to interpret completely. Now, we, uh, you know, we can look and see some things that are very clear, but then there's some things that are not very clear. And I'm not a preacher that, that uh, is, is going to get up and preach something that is not clear and try to make it dogmatic. Uh, of course, in the eschaton, we, we, cannot, uh, we cannot completely... Um, Somebody's bread's about to, uh, oh no, oven going off. Um, in, in the eschaton, we cannot be completely uh, certain about things, and especially, uh, you know, when it comes to prophetic events. There's some things we know. We know Jesus is coming back, amen? And we know that uh, there's going to be a tribulation period, and we know that uh, the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet will all be destroyed, and we know that we'll rule and reign, of course, Christ will rule and reign, we'll rule with Him and reign with Him uh, for a thousand years. And then we'll spend forever uh, with Jesus in heaven. And there's some things that we know and they're very clear, but then there's cer- certain things that are not uh, very clear. And so I want to take some time this morning in Zechariah. It's, it's, it's speaking of, and you'll know when we get to it, uh, some things that has happened and then some things that will happen as we've been journeying through this wonderful book. Zechariah chapter 11, and with God's help this morning, I want to preach on 30 pieces of silver. Now, uh, we know that 30 pieces of silver is is what, of course, Jesus Christ was sold out uh, to the chief priest and all of them by Judas Iscariot, but it's prophesied in Zechariah chapter 11, and so we see that clearly uh, in that. So that's why I entitled it this morning, 30 Pieces of Silver. Zechariah 11 is the anatomy of, of history's greatest tragedy. There's been some great tragedy in history. I'm, I'm a, I love history and I love world history. And there's been some great tragedies. But I honestly believe this, that I don't think there's been a tragedy quite like we're going to read in Zechariah chapter 11. And what's interesting about this this chapter is the analysis was written uh, after the fact. So, uh, or was not written rather after the fact. It was penned 500 years before actually some of this happened. And so it's a prophetic in the sense that Zechariah was writing about things that was going to happen. And, uh, but yet they were tragedy. It outlines the amazing tragedies of, of Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And then there's awful consequences that come with rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that to be a fact, that if anybody rejects Christ, there's awful consequences that will take place. A nation that rejects the Lord, there's awful consequences that comes with rejecting the Lord Jesus. So Zechariah 11 is, is the exact opposite of Zechariah chapter 9 and Zechariah chapter 10. Uh, Zechariah 9 and 10 is 
dealing with the promises and the future provisions and protection that God has. Remember Alexander the Great, how he was invading, but then he, he went around Jerusalem. And then um, we realized that uh, uh, he was, uh, God was protecting, God was protecting the nation of Israel and Jerusalem especially. And then we see uh, in chapter 10, God's promises of asking, right? So he tells Israel, ask. And so we preached a little bit about prayer for promises last week. So I'm going to take the majority of the text this morning and I am going to lay the groundwork. Now listen. I'm going to lay the groundwork if you are with me, all right? Because the, the, the message in itself is only a few minutes long. Now, when we get to the message, you're going to say, Now, Pastor, what have you been doing the whole time? Well, we've got to lay the groundwork, all right? And we're laying the foundation, and so I want you to stay with me in Zechariah chapter 11. Let's read the first three verses together of our text. The Bible says this, Open thy doors, O Lebanon. That the fire may devour thy cedars, howl, fir tree, for the cedar is fallen. Because the mighty are spooled, howl, O ye oaks of Bashan. For the forest of the vintage is come down. There is a voice of the howling of the shepherds, for their glory is spoiled. A voice of the roaring of young lions, for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for uh, this text this morning. Thank you for the, uh, God, the uh, time that we've already had in our morning service. I, I thank you for all that you've done and all you're going to do uh, here today. Uh, Lord, you've been gracious to us. Uh, Lord, you've brought people here today. You have filled this building up over and over. And Lord, I pray for the next few minutes, may we ease out our minds of what's going on after the service. May we forget about all the plans of this coming week, our troubles, things that we're dwelling on. And may we, for a few minutes, dwell in Zechariah 11. We thank you for the word. I pray that you'll bless us today in Jesus' name. Amen. The context of Zechariah chapter 11 indicates that the first three verses refer to the destruction of Jerusalem that occurs in A.D. 70. A man by the name of Titus, not Titus of the Bible, but Titus of Rome, he invaded Jerusalem. And matter of fact, those first three verses speaks of these leaders, if you will, Lebanon, Bashan, and Jordan. They represent the whole land. So the whole land was really destroyed uh, the uh, stately uh, cedars of Lebanon were maybe in a literal sense destroyed, but they were also in a spiritual sense, they were leveled. I mean, they were destroyed. And I believe if, if you read these verses, it, it even indicates that the shepherds, in verse 3, the voice of the howling shepherds, it means the wailing of the shepherds. It was a very, very... Uh, very down time in the nation of Israel, especially A.D. 70. From A.D. 66 to about A.D. 70, the nation of Israel was destroyed by the Romans. And we'll say a, a little bit more about that. They were wailing. It was a terrible time in the nation of Israel during that time. Now, I want you to get in your mind, uh, we're, we're going to break down these verses in chapter 11, and then, as I said, we're going to give you the message or the 
application at the very end. But when we lay this down, I want you to get in your mind, and maybe this will help you kind of wrap your mind around Zechariah 11. Uh, Imagine in your mind that we are attending this morning two dramas. All right, two dramas. If you've ever attended a play or a drama or a cantata, uh, you're going to see a scene one. And then you're going to see a scene number two. Now, the drama is acted by none other than Zechariah, the writer of this book, the one who is the prophet of the day. He is going to act out in two different ways, and his role is he's acting as two different shepherds. Now, I want you to keep that in your mind. He's two different shepherds. He's leading two, uh, the nation of Israel in two different ways. And I want you to, when scene one breaks, I'll, I'll let you know. There'll be no intermission. You can't get up and leave. Can't go to the popcorn. Can't, you know, I want you to stay where you are. Because scene two will happen, but it's a lot shorter than scene number one. So the Lord says in verse number four, notice what the Lord says to Zechariah. Thus saith the Lord my God, feed the flock of the slaughter. So he, he, he's given this this word to Zechariah. He says, I want you to play the role of a shepherd. Zechariah, I want you to feed the flock of the slaughter. I, I want you to, to, to step into some shepherd's clothes, Zechariah, and I want you to be a shepherd as nation of Israel would be my flock. So he, he portrays Two shepherds. One shepherd is the good shepherd. Well, we know the good shepherd, who that is. That's none other than Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. And then we see the foolish shepherd, or what the Bible calls the, the foolish shepherd. He's, he's the bad shepherd. So we got the good shepherd. He plays most of the majority of the play. But then we see at the very end, we see the bad shepherd make an appearance. And I'll explain to you who that is. Look with me in verse number 5. The Bible says in Zechariah 11.5, whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty and they that sell them say, blessed be the Lord for I am rich and their own shepherds pity them not. Now verse 5, I think the shepherds here are, are very well explained. They're explained in a way that they did not care about the needs of the flock because the Bible says in one little statement in verse 5, for I am rich. And it says, I am rich and their own shepherds pity them not. So they're rich and they're rich because they are fleecing the flock. That's what the bad shepherds did. The bad shepherds of Israel's day, they would fleece the flock or they would abuse the flock in a way that, that they would uh, pad their own pockets or they would take advantage of the people. So the religious leaders, that this was really describing them. They were the re- religious leaders of Jesus' day. And so God interjects that he will no longer have pity on them, uh, nor will he have pity on the people of the Lord or the people of the land. Look with me in verse number 6. Stay with me. The Bible says, For I will no, for I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, meaning the people. 
saith the Lord. But lo, I will deliver the men, every one into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king, and they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. So this sounds like to me that God is interjecting because of their their waywardness and because of their distance and because of their rebellion, I'm pulling out. I am not going to bless this people. I'm not going to protect this people. And so he interjects that he's no longer going to have pity on them. And this is a sad thing. When, when, you, when you run your course and when you do your own thing and when you choose to not do what God tells you to do, hey, heavy, heavy is going to hang over you and don't expect God to have compassion on you when your world falls apart. He's not going to bless those that are disobedient and he's not going to have pity on those who do their own thing. So then Zechariah, according to verse number 7, he picks up two staffs. So I want you to look at what it says in verse 7. For I will feed the flock of the slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And I took unto me two staves, the one I called beauty and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. So that one uh, staff was a, uh, the term beauty. It meant favor. The other staff would be the word bands, which means unity. So get this in your mind. Uh, we have a shepherd. He's, he's got the instruments of a shepherd. He's got two, sh- uh, two uh, staves or two staffs, and he's, he's guarding the flock. And so he's watching the flock. Uh, you can go over to Psalms 23. He said, thy rod and thy staff. So it was not uncommon for uh, people to, or especially shepherds, to have two staffs. One to, uh, to correct the sheep and fight off the wolves or whatever. And the other is to corral the sheep. And, and uh, it would have a little hook on the end. And, and he would grab those sheep and pull them in. So one of them is called beauty. And the other is called bands or favor and unity. And so we, we have those in this picture according to verse number 7. He says, I'm going to have both of these. And, and, and he said, I fed the flock. Now look at verse number 8. So three shepherds also I cut off. So he cuts off, or the Bible said that word really means fired. So he fires two or three shepherds, and the Bible says in verse number 8 that he does it in one month. Now, everywhere I tried to study this out, uh, I can't see the significance of one month other than he's really meaning a short period. So in a very short period, God is going to fire the three shepherds. And you say, well, pastor, who would be the three shepherds? Well, I believe that after the decimation that Titus came in and and annihilated Jerusalem in 70 AD, uh, that the offices of the priest and the prophets and the kings were no longer needed. Because the nation of Israel ceased to exist for 1900 years. There's no sacrifices that are needed. There's no, uh, there's no, uh, uh, any type of prophet needed as far as the preaching and warning. And there's nobody to really receive the messages. And there's certainly no need for a king if your city has been destroyed. So uh, we see that, and by the way, that one text, that one uh, verse number eight has been interpreted over 40 different ways. 
So when you start studying out verse number 8, Zechariah chapter 11, you can see 40 different ways that Zechariah 11, 8 is interpreted. So again, we can't be so dogmatic, but I believe that it is the prophet, the priest, and the kingship of Israel that is no longer needed. And so there was no temple, there was no priest after AD 70, no 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 priest to offer sacrifices and after that time there will be no uh, no king of the Jews well, look with me in verse number 9 it gets worse it says in verse 9 then said I I will not feed you that dieth let it die and that that is to be cut off and let it be cut off and let the rest eat everyone the flesh of another this literally happened in AD 70 Titus, when he invaded Jerusalem and ravaged the city and destroyed the temple and burned everything with fire, the Bible uh, makes it very clear that Jerusalem was destroyed. Things got so bad that there was no food. And so since there was no food, uh, they started turning on themselves and they began to eat themselves and turned into cannibalism. And it's literally prophesied right here in verse number 9, at the very end of that, it says, And let rest, the rest eat everyone the flesh of another. Zechariah literally prophesies that they would turn on each other and eat each other. Now, let me just say this. That's pretty low when you start eating human flesh. But what makes it more clear to me is that this is judgment from God is the fact that Zechariah is prophesying this hundreds of years before it actually happens. He's saying that Israel is going to get so bad that you're going to reject the good shepherd and this is the outcome. You're going to reject the good shepherd and you're going to turn on each other. You're going to turn on one another. I think that we see In this text, we find some more things in verse number 10. The Bible says, And I took my staff, even beauty, which means favor, and I cut it asunder that I might break my covenant, which I had made with all the people. So what's he do? He he takes the the favor of God is really what this staff means. He takes the favor of God, and the shepherd cuts that staff in half. And what what that staff really symbolized, the favor of God, was the protection of God. So what happens is, is as soon as he lifts the hedge of protection around Israel, as soon as he lifts that hedge of protection up, the enemies are able to invade. And they come in because verse number 11 says, And it was broken in that day, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Things got so bad after the favor was lifted and after it was cut asunder that the remnant that was still there, that little remnant, knew that this was from God. That's how bad it got. Let me tell you something. When things get bad in our life and we are running from God, and some of you have been there before when you've ran from God and God chastised, we know God chastises His own. He does things or allows things to happen in our life to get our attention. And we're like, whoa, hey, can I tell you when God does something in your life, you won't have to wonder where that came from. There's things that's happened in my life. There was a little period of time in my early 20s when I ran from God and I ran from the calling and I I was 
kind of doing my own thing. And God sent something into my life that I had to just stop and realize this is from God. And then the blessings, we know they come from God. The chastisement uh, comes from the Lord. And, and this is exactly what is happening in the nation of Israel. The, the veil has been lifted, if you will. The hedge of protection has been lifted. And the enemy now can come in. And the remnant that is there, they knew this was from God. Now look with me in verse number 12. And I said unto them, If you think good, give me a price. Or give me my price. And if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. So these two verses, verses 12 and, and verse number 13, they, they really describe, and, and again, we're in a drama, so keep this in mind. They really describe Israel's rejection of the good shepherd. So Zechariah is is uh, uh, he's betraying the the um, the good shepherd, and he's saying in verse number twelve, "I'm going to the the I'm watching the flock, and I'm going to the owners of the flock, and I'm asking them for a wage. I'm saying, what what is my wage for tending the flock? Now, notice what the response is in verse number." 12 at the very end. So they weighed for my price or they decided what my price was and they came up with 30 pieces of silver. So here's his response to the 30 pieces of silver. He then looks at verse 13 and he said, And the Lord said unto me, this is Zechariah, Cast it unto the potter a goodly price that I was prized at of them And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now this is prophetic. Because we we see that this 30 pieces of silver is something we can attribute to the New Testament. Christ, of course, was was, uh, sold out for 30 pieces of silver. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But the significance of 30 pieces of silver goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 21. In Exodus 21, that whole chapter is designated on how to treat slaves. And at the very end of the chapter, there's one little verse that says, and if your slave, and I'm paraphrasing, but if your slave is gored by an ox, meaning that an ox uh, hurts or, or, or takes his horn and, and somehow gourds the side of, an, uh, of a, a servant or a slave and mangles him and nearly kills him, his worth is 30 shekels of silver. So here, uh, this man, Zechariah the prophet, he goes to get his wages and says, hey, I've been working, what is my payment? And here's what they said. Oh, you're worth about 30 pieces of silver. Here's what they're saying. You're not even worth a healthy slave to me. You're worth about what a gourd slave would be, one that's been run through and bleeding and about dead. That's about what you're worth. One that can't function, one that can't uh, uh, do his role. That's what you're worth. Now turn with me to Matthew 27. In the New Testament, Matthew 27 And look with me in verses 3. We'll start in verse number 3. Matthew 27 and verse number 3. 
Then Judas. He's already betrayed the Lord and he's already met with the council there and the chief priest and different religious leaders. He's already decided on a number. This is after he's betrayed the Lord. Jesus has already been arrested. Look at verse 3. So then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. There was a moment that Judas had a heart kind of come to Jesus moment, if you will, no pun intended, but he, he literally, he, he had kind of come to this moment in his life where he said, what have I done? I've, I've betrayed the Lord Jesus, my friend. I've, I've done this thing. I believe Judas was having a moment for a second, and he, he said, well, maybe these priests will take their money back. Here's what it is. He repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Talking about the Lord. And they said, notice what they said. This is how heartless they were. These were were people that were more low down than Judas. More low down than Judas. That's a good title for a message. Are you more low down than Judas? Well, that'd be a nice one. Be encouragement, wouldn't it? But here's their response. Judas is actually having a moment of repentance in a way. He's feeling terrible. He's coming to the temple. He's like, guys, I, I sold out the Lord. I'm, he's already captured. He's standing before Caiaphas. He's about to be uh, killed. And look what I've done. Take this money back. I can't take this money. And they said, what is that to us? Wow. What, what Judas, bro, we, we played you. You fell right into our trap. You were the weak link in the disciples. You were the one that we could work through to get Jesus. What is that to us? And notice what they said. In verse 5, and he cast down the pieces. And he cast down the pieces of silver. So he just throws them. He says, well, I'm not taking this. This is blood money. And he cast them down at at the priest's feet and departed and went out. And what? He hanged himself. He was at the end. This was his last time trying to get some help. I believe Judas was trying to get some help. And when they said that, he he went out and hanged himself. Notice what else happened in verse 6. And the chief priest took the silver and the pieces and said, It is not lawful uh, to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And so they took counsel and and brought uh, with them, uh, bought with them the potter's field. To bury strangers in. Now potters in those days, they took earthen vessels, they made pottery and used them in the temple. Potters didn't make hardly any money. They were considered poor. And they would take those earthen vessels and would use them in ceremonial acts, if you will. And and when they were beyond usable or maybe they were stained or ugly or maybe broken, maybe they got dropped in a few, they would just take them and throw them out. They say in excavating around where the temple is that they would, uh, they would find broken pieces of pottery and, and they, even to this day they still find tons and tons of pottery. So the potter's field was purchased with that blood money and basically the Bible says that they bought that little field to bury strangers in, people they didn't know, people that didn't have family, people that maybe died they couldn't identify and they would just throw their body, bury it and that's what they used that that money, 30 pieces of silver for. 
You can read a little, a little bit more about that in Acts chapter 1, I think verses 16 and 17. The field of blood. This is exactly what they thought about Jesus. They, they decided to, uh, to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. It goes on to say that that field in verse number 8 is called the field of blood unto this day. And then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet. Now, uh, I said this earlier in the first service and, and uh, we're, we're preaching out of Zechariah, but Matthew mentions Jeremy or Jeremiah. It's what we assume. We don't really know. You say, well, pastor, I thought there was no contradictions in Scripture. There's not. There, there, there's a reason. I just don't know the reason that Matthew actually mentions Jeremiah versus, uh, versus Zechariah. I mean, uh, as far as I know, it's not mentioned in Jeremiah. So you say, well, pastor, why would, why would uh, Matthew mention the wrong prophet? Well, I don't think it's a mistake. I think it was actually a deliberate thing. I believe, and and I've talked with it. Me and Zach talked about it just a little bit. And I love things that cause us to study a little bit. And again, you can study and study and study and still not have a 100% reason. But the best that we can come up with is the fact that Jeremiah was uh, referred to in the Old Testament as, as a prominent prophet. He was a known prophet. He was a prophet that everybody would have referred to in the, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. They, they'd have looked at Isaiah and they would have looked at Jeremiah. And I believe that Jeremiah, uh, his name even has some prominence in the fact that it just means in a generalized prophet. And it could have been that, that, uh, uh, that they were referring to Zechariah, but went with the more prominent name in Jeremiah. I'm not really sure. There's also some other things that they speculate and say that the names are very close together. And, and uh, I'm not sure about that. But, but I know that there was, must be a reason. And so one day when we get to heaven, and you can go up and say, Lord, I got hung up on Zechariah chapter 11 and I believe Matthew uh, said Jeremiah or Jeremy uh, and he should have said Zeremy or Zechariah. Zeremy wouldn't make any sense either. But uh, Zechariah would make uh, better sense. And so uh, Matthew mentions that. But we're happened to be in Zechariah chapter number 11. I want us to look though in in, in Zechariah chapter 11 uh, chapter 11, I want us to look at verse number 13. He says, cast it down at the potter. So this is prophetic. This is, this, is prof- this is exactly what happened in the house of the Lord. Cast it down at the temple in the house of the Lord. You're not taking this. And of course, Judas goes out and he hangs himself. Now look at verse 14. Now get, get this in mind. The shepherd has two staffs. He's done, he's done cut one asunder lifting the hedge of protection around Israel. And now he has the second one called bands or unity. And he says, I may break that one or cut it in two so the brotherhood between Judah and Israel will, will no longer be. So what did they start doing? And no longer unity, no longer unified. They began to fight with each other. Judah and, and Israel began fighting. And Josephus, one of the historians, Bible historians of, of that day, Josephus said the wars among the Jews is what brought in Titus and Rome to finish him off. There was no longer unity. And that's exactly what's prophesied in verse 14. He cut asunder the unity between Judah and Israel. Now between verse 14 and 15 is the church age. That's where we are today. Between verses 14 
and verse 15. I want you to look with me because something happens in verse 15. That's the end of scene number one. The good shepherd, Zechariah, of course, uh, he's, he's, he's symbolizing Jesus as the good shepherd. He goes to the back. He takes off the shepherd outfit of the good shepherd, and the staves are cut in, in half, and so he takes all that. And the Bible says in verse 15, And the Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of the foolish shepherd. So the end of scene one, And the beginning of scene two, he says, I want you to go to the back. I want you to put on the clothes of a foolish shepherd. And I want you to take the instruments of a foolish shepherd. And I want you to show Israel what a foolish shepherd looks like. And so he describes what it is. Look at verse 16. That word foolish, by the way, means evil. So verse 16, For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land which shall not visit those that be cut off, neither shall they seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that that standeth still, and he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Woe to the idle shepherd that leave the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye, and his arm shall be clean dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. So the Lord instructs Zechariah. You say, Pastor, I'm just not following along in these verses, in the latter part of these verses. He's, he tells him to take the clothes off of a good shepherd, put on the clothes of a bad shepherd, and this is what describes the bad shepherd. The bad shepherd is, uh, is, has some issues. He, the, the Bible says in verse number 16 that his arm or in verse 17 rather, that the sword shall be upon his arm. It sounds like to me there'll be some type of wound. And then it says in verse 17, and that his eye, his right eye, will be darkened. Notice the analogies there. He, and this shepherd in verses 16 and 17, it sounds like he will ravage the flock for his own advantage. He is the foolish shepherd. He is the bad shepherd. He is the one that will ravage the flock. He will take advantage of the flock. And he has a withered arm. He has a blind right eye. And he should have used those limbs or had those limbs present to to watch over the flock. I mean, a shepherd needs two strong arms and he needs two good eyes to oversee the flock and to maybe pick up the sheep and to use both staves. But this, this shepherd don't have that. He's limited. I believe some may ask, well, pastor, who is this foolish shepherd? I want us to turn to Revelation 13. I'm going to show you what the Lord revealed to me a little bit through His Word this week. And and Revelation 13, speaking of the tribulation period, talking about the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Look with me and start in verse number 11. And we're going to to study and, and preach through these last remaining chapters of Zechariah and allude a little bit more to... Uh, the Antichrist, and to those things in that. Look with me in verse 11. The Bible says of Revelation 13, verse 11, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. 
and he doth great wonders. See, this is what people's going to believe. You, you may be sitting here today and you think, well, I, I'm not going to get saved today. I'm just going to go through this thing and just see how it all works out. And then if it doesn't work out real well, I'll get saved at the very end. But that's not what Thessalonians says. As soon as the Holy Spirit is pulled out, the restraint of the Spirit of God, the Antichrist comes on the, on the scene and the Bible says a great deception will fall. Now, I'm going to make a statement here in just a moment. I believe that an overwhelming number of people that are even members of this church are lost. They have never truly been saved. I'm burdened. It is, it is part of my prayer every day is, Lord, would you save people that attend our church? Even people that say they're saved. Why? Because there has never really been a regeneration of the Spirit of God in their life. And here's what's going to happen. You say, well, pastor, I'm telling you, if I'm not saved, I'll get saved. No, no, you won't. Because according to this text in Revelation 13 and even 2 Thessalonians, it says that, that he, and deceive, in verse 14 of Revelation 13, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of the miracles. This man is going to be able to perform miracles. You say, well, pastor, what's it talking about in Zechariah 11 about his arm being, being uh, cut by the sword or stopped by the sword? I believe that, that the, 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 really the revelation of that would be that the, the, the states and the countries that join the Antichrist, according to Revelation 17, are going to be cut off by the Lord. We, we see in Revelation 17 that the Lord will over, overcome the Antichrist by the blood of the Lamb. He's going to cut off the armies of the Antichrist. He's going to cut and that is the right arm of the Antichrist, is these states and these countries that join up with his forces. You say, well, pastor, what would be the, the blind eye or the darkened eye? I believe that is the darkness of his government. He will look normal, but his eye will be darkened. Everything he looks in this judicial world, everything will be observed through darkness. We're seeing some of that today. I had a woman come out in the lobby just a moment ago, and she said, Preacher, I know who the Antichrist is. And she listed a politician right now. And I'm like, that's not it. Sorry, gal. We, you know, so many people look at the Bible and they start wanting to know who the Antichrist is. And sometimes we get our eyes so fixated on who the Antichrist is, we get our eyes off of Jesus. I have not, I don't think I've ever worried about, and I can honestly say hand on the Bible, I've never worried about who the Antichrist is. Because here's the deal, I'm saved. So really, who the Antichrist is, church, does not bother me. Drew, hit that air condition, please, buddy. Hasn't been on the whole time. Here's the deal. I'm not, I'm not worried about who the Antichrist is because, listen, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one that's the, the, the author of our faith. And by the way, he's the one that'll finish it all. But here's the deal. If you're the least bit, church, listen to me. If you're the least bit worried about who the Antichrist is and you're worried about what all's going to happen after that, how about join me in looking unto Jesus? Because Revelation 17, I mean, just a few chapters over uh, in Revelation 17, 
talking about the mother of harlots coming out, I believe it's going to be coming out of the, the country of Rome. It's interesting to me that Rome in AD 70 is the one that decimated Jerusalem and Rome's going to be the one in the great tribulation period. It's going to have a very vital part uh, with the Catholic Church and with others in bringing about the, uh, the uh, Antichrist and the beast. But notice what the Bible says in Revelation 17 and verse 13. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Talking about the states. The countries, the kingdoms, these ten horns. Notice though what happens in verse 14. These shall make war with the Lamb. So they're all going to come together in the Valley of Megiddo and they're going to all join forces. We're going to talk about that in Zechariah here in a week or two. They're going to join forces in the Valley of Megiddo to rise up against the Lamb. But notice what happens. And the Lamb shall overcome them. It don't matter how many countries or how many kingdoms or how many forces that you have, there is nothing nor nobody that can overcome the Lamb. And He overcomes them with His blood. The Bible says, For He is Lord of lords, King of kings, and they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Who's that? That's us. Called, chosen, and faithful. And I'm thankful for that. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm chasing that rabbit and I just shot him. We're back on track. I believe that bad shepherd at the very end of chapter 11 is the Antichrist. Here's what I believe, church. I believe we're living in the last days. And I'm not saying that to shock or, or any type of, of, of get a reaction. I believe, I believe we're living in the last days. And it could be that this world leader is already on the scene. It could be that he's in the shadows and, and when all this mess goes on, he'll be revealed and he'll, he'll definitely come and speak peace and he'll bring uh, a lot of uh, answers to some solutions, but they're not really answers and they're not really solutions because he has a blind, darkened eye. And there's an agenda. What's his agenda? Is to abuse, to abuse his power and to, of course, his, in his mind, to defeat the armies of the Lord. You say, Pastor, why then, Zechariah 11, what is the application there that we must take home from this very deep passage of Scripture, really? If you read it in your general reading, you'd be just like myself years ago. I would have been, man, what, Lord, what in the world? But look... Back in verse number 12, I guess if we were to say Zechariah 11, if there was a key or a theme of this chapter, it would be found right here. And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear, for they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. Here's the message. We see the overwhelming theme of Zechariah 11 and really the theme would be that they rejected Christ and it brought about consequences. But secondly, they never valued Him. So the first thing is rejecting Christ brings great tragedy. 
If you're in here this morning and you've heard the gospel that Jesus loves you, that he paid for your sins on the cross of Calvary, that he died, he was buried for your sins and rose again on the third day and conquered death, hell, and the grave, and he loves you and he wants you to be uh, his and he wants you to go to heaven one day and join him forever and all these things that we're reading will be with him. We are chosen. We are with him. We are conquerors through Christ. I mean, all these things. But if you choose to reject Christ today, it will be a great tragedy. You say, what do you mean by rejecting the Lord? Well, anytime we reject the Lord, it's a great tragedy and it's a bad situation. And let me just say this, if you don't serve the Lord, you're serving somebody. I was reading the book by Philip Keller on a shepherd's view, I believe it is, of the sheep or something like that. But basically a Psalms 23 overlook. Every pastor should, a pastor gave it to me years and years ago. But I remember one illustration, very vivid, where Philip Keller, he was observing a shepherd coming down the side of a, of a hill and leading these sheep to some greener pastures and really a watering hole down in, in the bottom there where they could drink and, and be refreshed. And he said he noticed that these sheep were following the shepherd other than maybe five or six or seven other sheep that had kind of gotten impatient with the shepherd. And they began to scatter a little bit and they started f- drinking from these little mud holes. They found little just puddles of water that were kind of stagnant from previous rain and they began to drink from these mud holes and these watering holes that had parasites, that had disease, that had things in it. And though it quenched a temporary satisfaction, a a temporary thirst, it did not make them well. And many people are trying to follow their own path instead of God's path. They're trying to follow and make their own way instead of what God... Listen, we don't want God to abandon us at all. So to reject Christ is a great tragedy. Number two, to reject Christ means not to value Him properly. 30 pieces of silver. Give me my price. That's what the shepherd asked. What's your price this morning for the Lord? What do you value Him? What do you value Him? In your love, your devotion, your obedience. At what price? I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. At what price do I value the Lord? If you have no value of the Lord whatsoever, then get saved. If there's no value, then... Become a Christian because a Christian should value the Lord Jesus. We ought to put value. You say, well, well, if we value the Lord, it will reflect in a way we would live, right? You would think this morning, if I value the Lord, then my life will reflect value, right? For instance, do you value Him through your witness? Have you ever witnessed to anybody at all? Listen to me, listen, listen, look up at me. Have you ever witnessed to him or, or to, uh, uh, to somebody about him at all? Talk to somebody about Jesus. And then here's the deal. Live it. 
Be a a walking testimony. Be a living, walking testimony of the Lord. Hey, secondly, is there any value by the way you walk with God? Meaning, do you read your Bible? Do you pray? Do you ever spend time in the Lord? I value my wife's relationship. I value my wife's relationship. And I desire to spend time with her every day. Every day. Every day. I value that relationship that I have with her. I have seen friends, like we had Dale Vance a little bit ago, a few weeks ago, back in January, and Dale lost his wife of cancer. And I was on the phone with Dale yesterday, just a friendly conversation. He called me, and he, and he said, Steve, I'm, uh, you know, tell me of a story about something. And, and the moment his name pops up on my phone, I immediately go to his wife, Rachel, and I, I begin to think about his uh, now over a year separated from his wife. She's in heaven. He's down here trying to make it, raising his daughter. I, I thought to myself, how sad, because I value my wife's relationship so much that if anything happened to her, it would kill me. Do we value the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we value the Lord Jesus Christ? If anything happens to our relationship, does it bother us? How do, do we value the Lord in, in, in a reflection in our giving? Some of you, I don't know who gives here, at all in, in investing, but if it was reflected on your tithing statement, you would not value the Lord, and you know it. You don't, you don't give, you don't tithe. You don't invest, you don't give the missions. Oh, yeah, I just took the holy grunt out of all y'all. I mean, when you've mentioned giving, that's everybody, that's our God in America, our, our wallet, our pocketbook. That's Boy, preacher, you're hitting me where it hurts. That's right. Because we invest in hobbies. And I've got so many hobbies that I'm poor. My wife looked, we were reading something last night $20,800 a year it costs to raise one child. $20,800. We got four, so I was doing the math. I thought I might sell one or two. And then she said, No, it's still less than raising you. That's what she said. And I could not disagree. Because of hobbies. And then I've asked the Lord, Lord, you know, and he shakes his head and says, Bud, you know, you're in trouble. You got to ditch some hobbies. And I'm just looking at him. I'm not sure which one to ditch. And when the Lord convicts me of it, honey, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> but do we invest in more of our hobbies than we do the Lord Jesus Christ? I've had to ask myself that question in all sincerity. I've had to say, Lord, Do I love you more than I love these? Remember when Peter was on the side of the shore? Lovest thou me more than these? We're not really sure what these are. But whatever it was, Jesus was saying, Peter, hey look at me church, I'm almost through, look. Peter, do you love me more than these? Whatever it was, the Lord knew that Peter's affection was in that. Is he saying that to us at all? Here's the last thing. The alternative is to value Him properly. So, rejecting Christ 
means not to value him properly, meaning we're not adding any value to him at all. I mean, we're like a Judas. We're like them priests in the temple. We're like these over here that said, we've weighed it and you're worth about, about a, 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 the, the amount we would give to a, an injured slave. That's about what you're worth. And we Christians sometimes are no better. We love the benefits that Christ brings, but we just don't show it. It's not reciprocated. The alternative is to value Him properly. To realize and apprehend all that Jesus is worth is a lifelong journey. Last place I'll turn to is Philippians chapter 3. Just briefly, notice what the Apostle Paul says about Jesus, about Christ. I don't think anybody else could have ever said it any better. Verse number 8, he says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Let me tell you something. Paul suffered. He lost everything. Basically, his health, he lost it all. He was in prison when he wrote this. He lost his freedom. lost his house. As far as we know, Paul never was married, never really had children. He was all dedicated to the Lord. He lost all of those things. His health, we, we knew he had thorns in the flesh. He lost it all. And he says, but I have, I counted these things lost. Even, even his education, that he was in the Sanhedrin. Paul was a very educated man. And he says, and I do count them but dung. Worthless. Nothing. Nothing that I may win Christ. Then he goes over to verse number 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Do we value the Lord? Do we value the Lord? Value His birth, value His life, value His death, value His resurrection and His coming. Is Jesus more precious to me than he was a year ago? Five years ago. Ask yourself. Am I going back? Paul said he's pressing forward. Am I going back in my walk with God? I used to, man, I used to read my Bible and I used to do these things and I used to just, I used to be a better, uh, a better witness. I used to be just, my speech was better. My, my being a dad or mom was better. All because my relationship was better. How are you today? Are you going back? Are you going forward? I want us to close our eyes and bow our heads for a moment. We'll be through in just a moment. I want to ask you a simple question, a couple questions. I have been praying. I did not say that just to um, get your attention. I said that because I am burdened. I am burdened for people to get saved in our church that attends our church, that are members of our church. There's too many people that attend this church that come here to check a box off or make, make somebody see somebody. Or You say, well, Pastor, you're preaching to the choir. We're here. I know. That's even more. It's even more significant. You're here. 
You're hearing the word preached. Are you saved? Are you saved? Do you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Don't care how long you've been in church. Don't care who your daddy is, your mommy is. I don't care what they do. I don't care what you do. All I care about is do you know Christ? Are you going to be deceived in that day? Are you deceived now? We're talking about a future deception, but are you, are you saved now? Do you know the Lord? Who would say this? Pastor, I know that I'm saved by God's grace. And as a testimony, I'll, I'll admit that. I know I'm saved if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. Would you raise your hand this morning? No one looking. I just, I, I, I feel like we need to do this this morning. Praise the Lord. You can put your hands down. Thank you for being sincere. Who would say this? Pastor, I was unable to raise my hand this morning. I'm not 100% sure that I know Jesus Christ as my Savior. Would you just pray for me? I'm not going to embarrass you. Wouldn't make you stand up, say anything at all. Just want to pray for you. Do you know the Lord as your Savior? Simple question. Are you saved? If he were to come back today, would you be with the church in heaven? Or would you be left behind? Pastor, pray for me. I'm not sure I'm saved. Would you lift a hand this morning? I'd just love to pray for you. Anybody like that at all today? Pastor, pray for me. I'm not sure that I know Jesus as my Savior. My last and final question would be this. And maybe I missed a hand. I'm not sure. If I did, I'd love to talk to you after the service. One of our pastors would. How much value does the Lord bring in your life? I mean, He knows the heart, so we're all going to stand before the Lord one day. How much value does the Lord bring in your life? How, how much do you value God? Do you value Him at all? Well, Pastor, I do more. You would do more for the Lord if you valued Him. That's just the bottom line. We just need to put value to the Lord. Who would say, God spoke to my heart today, Pastor. God spoke to my heart through His Word today. Would you please pray for me? Would you lift a hand up this morning? I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to pray for you all over the building. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a moment of prayer. We, we don't have a lot of room here at the altar. You can use it if you'd like. But you can make an altar right where you are and just say, Lord, I am I'm coming to you today because I have deprived you of things that I know I should be giving you. Honor, love, dedication, witness, devotion, praise, worship. And I've just not valued you like I should.